Warning, the following program contains topics of a frank and mature nature. Listener discretion is advised. Porn, HIV, and even more on masturbation. Put the kids to bed. It's time for Ask Science Mike After Dark. Welcome to Ask Science Mike. It's the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. And this week is an After Dark episode. For those of you who may be new to the program, on Science Mike After Dark, we cover questions that are banned or taboo in polite society. We talk about sex and drugs and really anything you send in. So I hope you enjoy this week's program, and if it's a little too much, go ahead and join us next week for a normal episode of Ask Science Mike. Our first question for this week's episode isn't even one question. Instead, it comes from dozens of emails I got following our last After Dark episode. In that episode, in response to a question about porn, shared some of the things I thought were dangerous or harmful about pornography, and I got a lot of pushback from my listeners for saying that. Uh, Now, this was consistently thoughtful, kind rational and reasonable pushback, but it dwarfed anything I've ever gotten in the program, which, you know, is surprising. We've talked about drug use. We've talked about pedophilia. We've talked about some pretty difficult topics on this program, but nothing hit a button quite as sensitive as discussing porn. Here's uh, some of the things people said. First of all, I got a lot of emails from actual sex workers, mainly uh, cam girls, and those are people who Uh, perform nude uh, over the internet for people, but I also got a few messages from uh, current or uh, former porn performers, and that was not the only feedback I got. I also got uh, emails from uh, researchers and psychologists and just people who were well-read who said a few things. One, they said that porn is sex positive and that uh, I should always reflect that porn is sex positive when I discuss it, Uh, that porn empowers women, that it does not, in fact, uh, oppress women. I got pushback on saying that porn is addicting, uh, and people said I should you know, do some more research on that. Again, very kindly. And finally, some people that said that pornography does not overstimulate the brain. So given the vast quantity of email I got, I wanted to really do my homework before I came back to this topic. I'm always open to looking at scientific data that people provide me and figuring out if I may be reading things wrong. That's possible. It might even be likely. Science is tough, and there's a lot of of different ideas out there in science. So here's what I found. One, there's a concept in science called supernormal stimuli. And supernormal stimuli is anything in our environment that appeals to parts of our brain that are responsible for finding critical things like food, shelter, safety, sex. Uh, Now, you can see this in specific tested cases. For example, if you create artificial bird's eggs that are larger and more brightly colored than natural songbird eggs, Uh, Mother birds will ignore their real eggs that contain their future generations and instead try to nourish and warm these fake eggs 
because they're bigger and brighter, and therefore, based on the instinct and the primitive parts of this bird's brain, uh, healthier or potentially more vibrant than the other eggs, even though they're fake. Uh, Similarly, some species of fish will attack brightly painted wooden decoys while ignoring real rivals for territory. Some other birds will even ignore real baby birds of their own and try to feed a fake baby bird that has a larger, more brightly colored mouth than their real offspring. Male turkeys will try to copulate with very attractive or fake artificial turkey heads, even if they don't have a body. They're just on a stalk. Uh, And so what's happening in all these cases is we've developed instincts that help us identify things in the environment which are good for us or desirable, that have a lot of calories. Um, Super normal stimulus explains why we love potato chips and french fries and hamburgers so much, why we love soda. These things are, are saltier and starchier and sweeter and more full of fat than anything we'd ever encounter in nature. And when we encounter these sorts of stimuli, it affects our willpower. Now, consider pornography. Consider, frankly, the over-sexualized, hyper-sexualized media we're surrounded with all the time, with photoshopped abdominals and photoshopped faces and cosmetic surgery. And I'm not saying cosmetic surgery is bad, by the way. First of all, a lot of times it's corrective, but even when it's not corrective, people can do with their bodies as they wish. Uh, But regardless, it creates a situation where parts of our brains respond to bigger eyes or larger breasts or more narrow waists or more sexual partners. For example, there have been studies that have shown sexual novelty is a big factor in human attraction. And so when I look at super normal stimuli and then I look at pornography, it's difficult for me to not see something that overstimulates the brain much the way that a fake robin egg would overstimulate the brain of a robin. Uh, Now, when I actually tried to look at this in data, there is genuine academic conversations, even controversy, over whether pornography is an addiction or not. There is no controversy that pornography can create compulsive behavior. Now, the primary difference between a compulsion and an addiction is a compulsion is something that you simply do over and over Uh, thoughtlessly and sometimes against your will, whereas an addiction typically has an escalation as part of the cycle where you have to get more and more of the stimulus to reach any state of satisfaction. Look at drug addiction. So there are some psychologists and some neurobiologists who would say that gambling and pornography are compulsions and others who would say they are addictions. Either way, they can produce undesired behavior even to the person who is exhibiting the behavior, okay? So in a very real way, in studies, pornography can subvert your willpower. In fact, one study found that frequent porn users' brains respond to porn cues in the same way that drug addicts respond to drug cues. Now that's interesting, and that research appears to have good methodology behind it. I'll have links to it in this week's show notes on AskScienceMike.com, along with a bunch of other stuff. Another study found that frequent porn consumption has, in fact, been linked to erectile dysfunction in young men where they're able to achieve an erection while watching porn, but not able to achieve an erection with an actual partner of their desired gender. So I definitely read everything you guys sent me, 
But that gives me pause about pornography, regardless of how it's produced, regardless of how it may affect the people that produce porn, there does seem to be, in science, real potential for human harm and human suffering from the simple act of frequently watching pornography. And based on my email box and many studies, it appears a significant number of people, both male and female, have difficulty resisting pornography. It's not something they choose to do as much as something that becomes a compulsion. Now, there are also reports in pornography that women being abused or manipulated or coerced is very common. There are first-hand accounts. You can find them on Google. They're very compelling, frankly. Uh, but because so many people in the industry contacted me, uh, I did something that I don't think has been done on a spirituality, especially a Christian spirituality podcast before. I actually reached out to a porn actress and asked if she'd talk to me. Uh, Rena Sky is a professional uh, pornography performer, uh, and she retweeted something I tweeted that uh, was about feminism, and Emma Watson's He For She campaign retweeted it, and then Rena retweeted as well. From there, I asked if she would be willing to talk to me for the program, and she was. Now, I'd talked to several um, performers who work in the adult industry already, but they were not willing to go on record, and I wanted to have someone who would let me use their name before I aired this episode. That's why it's taken so long. So thank you, Rena, <laughs> for letting me go on the record, and I'm going to do my best to just accurately relay everything that she said to me in our conversation. Uh, now, first of all, Rena Sky is an independent pornographic performer. She's not represented by an agency. She's not tied to any specific distributor. And I asked her about ethically sourced porn. In other words, if there are uh, people who are concerned with industrial agriculture and how it's produced, and they look for better alternatives but still want to eat meat, if someone still wants to watch porn, are there ways that they can be sure what they're watching was produced without you know, coercion or manipulation or abuse. And here is what Rena Sky told me. Number one, she said that no one enters the porn industry on the best day of their life, which I thought was a telling quote. And she also admitted uh, that victimization does happen and sometimes is an exploitation of addiction. So it's not necessarily very healthy for people who struggle with substance abuse addiction to work in this industry because there are those who would manipulate that. That said, uh, Rena says she enjoys her work and has total control over what job she takes and which one she doesn't and once she's on set, what she does and does not do because she has her own website that she controls, her own platform, and her own fans. And she said that's a key thing to look out for is someone who is effectively their own business person, uh, who has their own relationship with consumers, and therefore is not likely to do anything they don't want to do. Uh, she also said that you know if you look at performers who are available for webcam shows uh, without coercion, because trafficking is part of the webcam industry, um, but people who operate their own set, if you will, that can be a sign of someone who is doing this as a choice. And she said that independent performers like her have more control over their careers and their film choices. So because I actually got uh, about a dozen questions from people asking if there were ways to ethically source porn, 
and went straight to the source. That's what Rena Sky had to say. Now, Rena's a really nice person. She actually told me she works with a lot of people that are very lonely, people who aren't like me. They're not married. Uh, they don't have someone in their life who uh, fulfills intimacy for them. And she feels good about being able to provide some source of sexual excitement or connection to people who are lonely. Um, and I thought that was that was very compassionate. You know, this is a tough topic for me. I'm actually legitimately happily married. <laughs> uh, been with, with Jenny for 15 years. And uh, because of the intimacy in our relationship, frankly, that has gotten deeper the last few years, uh, following my journey through atheism and all that, that stuff, you know, these aren't things I, I think about directly. These aren't issues I wrestle with uh, like I may have years ago. But I understand all of you men and women out there uh, for whom pornography is a significant part of your sex life. There are no easy answers here. We certainly are creatures of intense sexual desire and arousal. And pornography can help sate some of that. Uh, in the absence of a partner, or even when you have a partner, some people enjoy the novelty and find it easier to stay faithful if they, they look at porn or, or whatever. That stuff is so far out of my league, all I can do is stick to the science. And there's a scientific case to be made that for some people, abstinence is probably better for pornography than participation uh, or viewing it. So if you have any doubt that you can handle porn, I'm going to go with science here and say it's best that you avoid it. If you can handle it and you feel like it does not conflict with your spiritual ethic or, or anything you understand about uh, God or specifically the teachings of Christ, I'm not going to judge you. It's your life, and the last thing I do is try to dictate what other people do in their bedrooms. So I hope uh, you'll go to AskScienceMike.com, look over some of the links provided on this answer, and uh, make your own choice on uh, spirituality and pornography. Our next question comes from the email inbox, and it reads, Hey Mike, so I'm sure you've heard the fundamentalist notion that Romans 127, men committed shameful acts with other men, and received in themselves the due penalty for their error, means that AIDS is what gay men get for having gay sex. Could you expound upon the science behind AIDS? Is there a correlation between contracting the disease and being gay, more specifically engaging in anal sex? If the fundy interpretation of that verse is wacko, could you offer another interpretation for what it could mean? Thanks so much. I'm going to take the answer backwards and start with the scriptural interpretation. One, I'm positive, as sure as I get about anything, that Romans 127 was not describing modern, monogamous, same-sex relationships. I'm totally certain about that. I am slightly less certain, but still confident, that uh, many historians are correct when they assert that Romans saw sexual arousal as a continuum on a spectrum and that the most inflamed or aroused states possible were same-sex attraction. That was not a separate orientation, but merely a degree of lustfulness. It's a little less confident still, but still, I think, easily within consensus 
with historians, would show that the only shame in Roman culture for a man was to be penetrated, and that a man could penetrate whomever he wished, male, female, slave, or free. Now, uh, some Christian scholars believe that Romans 127 is actually a reference to idolatry and sexual practices related to temple prostitution, and I'll have a link to that explanation in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com. Frankly, it's easier to read than to hear me recite if you need more detail than what I just gave you. All that said, when it comes to the Bible, I always avoid reading it without remembering that a specific author was writing to a specific audience with a specific agenda in a specific time, place, and culture. It's not helpful, generally, to take anything in the Bible at face value, but instead to consider that a human author was writing for a purpose to specific people who aren't me. Leviticus was not written to me. The book of Romans was not written to me. It's right in the title of the book. It was the church in Rome. Um, So when I read these things, I'm finding... The parts that are instructive to me, I'm learning about the history of Christianity and therefore how that can inform the present, but I'm not reading the Bible constitutionally. It's not a a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a scientific or historical depiction of the history of the world or even the history of God. The Bible, as I understand it, is a collection of stories, of flawed accounts of human encounters and understandings of God and an ongoing debate about the nature and character of God that continues to this day. Uh, Now, I understand that puts me way, way out with a lot of my listeners. Uh, You know, one of my favorite things about the show is we have both uh, theologically conservative biblical literalists that come along for the ride, uh, as well as post-theistic Christian polygamists uh, or polyamorous folk that listen to the show. So uh, it's, a, it's a really wide uh, table at Ask Science Mike, and I'm just glad that everybody comes along for the conversation and uh, frankly keeps the conversation interesting and civil. Now, that's the scriptural portion. Let's talk about uh, AIDS, HIV, and uh, same-sex sexual activities, specifically gay men. Step one, anal sex absolutely carries an increased risk of spreading HIV and many other sexually transmitted infections than vaginal sex. That's true. However, anal sex is also more common uh, than any other time in recent history right now among heterosexual couples, including, frankly, purity culture teenagers. We have soaring rates of oral and anal sex among evangelical teens trying to preserve their vaginal purity and with the corresponding uh, detrimental health effects uh, to go along with that. So, you know, obviously earlier in um, gay culture, anal sex was was much more common than it was in uh, heterosexual culture. Uh, Those rates are are getting much closer to parity today. And uh, frankly, due to the much larger number of straight people, there are many more straight people with HIV than uh, gay people with HIV today. Now, I would, I would look at this data point if we're using this line of reasoning. Oral sex is safer in terms of HIV transmission than both uh, anal and vaginal sex. So does that mean God is punishing people 
who have vaginal instead of oral sex? Well, of course not. No one thinks that. The, the most conservative Christian on the planet uh, probably thinks that oral sex is a form of sodomy, as is anal sex, and that vaginal sex is, is God's you know, ordained form of sexual activity. Uh, but just looking at uh, the, the, the medical uh, data, vaginal sex is a little more likely to transmit HIV than oral sex. So I don't think AIDS is like God's punishment of the nations. I think AIDS is a, a very clever virus that specializes in propagating among a type of human contact that requires our immune system compromise itself. Your immune system is designed to keep foreign agents out of your body, and that's exactly what happens during sex. Foreign agents enter your body, literally, for both partners. So safer sex practices are vital today. It's important to use a condom. It's important to be intentional about choosing sexual partners. Again, there are some STIs that transmit whether you're wearing a condom or not. Skin-to-skin contact in the general genital area is perfectly uh, sufficient. And we do want to remember that for both gay and straight people, anal sex does carry a significantly elevated risk of STI transmission. And therefore, you really want to limit uh, the number of sexual partners that you engage in anal sex with if that's something you're into. Uh, Be careful out there. Um, You know, there's one thing to talk about and debate these uh, biblical ethics and, and, and what's permissible and consent and all these sorts of things. But as someone who appreciates science... I think we've really also got to consider, you know, what bacteria and viruses have to say about sexuality. That doesn't mean I'm trying to be the boogeyman or scare people away from sex. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, Merely that we would be um, a lot better off as a society if both conservative religious folk and sexually progressive folk uh, were more prone to be less dogmatic about sex and more willing to simply look at medical data and uh, make decisions based on that. You know, our sex drives can, they can push past what our immune systems can protect us from. We can desire more sex than is healthy for us and more partners than is healthy for us. And I still remain comfortable understanding that I'm going to get pushback for this. Like I have already, in general, less sexual partners are better and definitely, definitely, definitely use a condom. So I'm sure I'll get more uh, on this and everything I've just said. I don't get anywhere near the pushback on any other episodes like I do uh, Ask Science Mike After Dark, but there we go. That's uh, my take on Romans 127, HIV and anal sex. One more question from the email box reads, Science Mike, I've listened to what you have to say about masturbation in previous episodes, particularly about masturbating without objectifying people. I find it very hard to masturbate to completion without thinking about being with someone sexually, and for a long time, this someone was my significant other. However, though I still have strong feelings of attraction and deep love for this person, Our relationship has recently ended, and I can't seem to help feeling guilty for thinking about them when I masturbate now, especially since they have moved on into a new relationship. Would you say this is indeed an unhealthy way to masturbate? If so, 
what would you suggest I do differently? Thanks so much. Love your show. There's at least a little of me um, that... that <laughs> I can't believe how many masturbation questions we get on this show. Like, I really, I can't believe it. It's not just men, it's women. And no matter how many times I think we've we've finally closed the book on masturbation on Ask Science Mike, I'm wrong. More questions come in. Um, and I think that it's really condemning on our American culture and church culture in general and the kind of puritanical roots and the anxiety we have over basic sexuality. So I want to review something from previous programs really quick. There's nothing wrong with masturbation. It doesn't destroy your soul. You're not going to go blind. Most studies show that moderate amounts of masturbation are healthy. They're good for people. They're good for the systems down there. They're good for the brain. Um, In contrast to my first answer this week about porn, which I think is overstimulating, there's no data saying that masturbation is overstimulating or leads to erectile dysfunction or anything like that. Um, it's a healthy release of sexual energy. Okay? I'm going to be very clear about that. All that said, even for me, it's kind of weird to try to get in somebody's headspace when it comes to sexual fantasies. <laughs> I've been happily monogamous for a long time, and uh, a lot of those gears are rusty in my brain. And, um, I'm science Mike, so I can give you my opinion, but there's not like data on, you know, healthy masturbation fantasies. I can't find any. And believe me, I looked, uh, my Google search history is a mess thanks to this show. (laughs) But uh, let's look at it this way. You were in a relationship and it's over now. Uh, The security, intimacy, and pleasure you had with your partner, they hang out in your mind. They're familiar and there's nothing wrong with that. And, and furthermore, I want to push back lightly on one thing. You know, you, you feel like it's wrong to, to fantasize about your former partner now that she's in another relationship. But let's remember that women are autonomous individuals and not property. And if it's wrong to fantasize about your partner, it's wrong as soon as the relationship is over, not because they enter a new relationship. Now, I know you didn't mean anything by that, but I keep reading more and more feminists and uh, becoming more and more aware. The subtle ways in which our language tends to denote uh, women are property of men, and they're not. Now, uh, on the other hand, your mental landscape is your mental landscape, right? Uh, As long as you don't manifest things into action, Uh, What happens in your brain is just what happens in your brain. And the question is whether it's good for you or bad for you. Um, And I would say if the relationship is over, it's probably healthiest to grieve and move on, right? This relationship is over and fantasizing sexually about the person isn't helping you release the feelings you have for them. In fact, you're reinforcing those memories and that stimulus was something really intense in the form of sexual stimulation and orgasm. And that's going to make it really difficult to create any kind of distance. Now, we are absolutely designed, designed at least by evolution, and I also argue by God, to be attracted to other people. And it's normal to think about other people when you're aroused. My previous commentary was about reducing human beings to sex objects, which I don't think is healthy or beneficial. But certainly, um, especially men, are going to picture actual people uh, when they masturbate. And that's going to be a a huge component of 
achieving climax. And this is all by design. Your body would like you to have sex with someone specifically. And so uh, you're vetting candidates and, and sort of giving yourself the drive and desire potentially to turn some of these fantasies into something real. It's a, it's a tale as old as time, if I could ruin Beauty and the Beast for a few people. I wouldn't stress about it. I would just try to redirect yourself into other places mentally uh, when you're masturbating. Uh, I wouldn't spend a lot of time like, being punitive with yourself or shaming yourself. Just redirecting, just reconditioning, and over time, you'll grieve and you'll move on, and it will be healthy. Our last question came in via email, and it reads, Mike, I have a heavy question for you. My wife has a very promiscuous past, many sexual partners, and heavy porn use. It all started when she was sexually abused at age 13, became active on her own will at age 14, and abuse occurred from a different source at age 16 and beyond. She's expressed to me that she enjoys sexual activity where she is dominated and or controlled. Months ago, when Fifty Shades of Grey was the ruckus in the Christian community, I had a friend post publicly on Facebook that anyone who enjoys dominating sexual activity must have an abusive past. And it raised a question for me and potentially connected dots in my head that I never knew existed. Is there any significant scientific or otherwise psychological link between abuse and or promiscuity at a young age and a certain style of sexual expression later in life? Thanks so much for considering my question. This is obviously an issue that weighs heavy on my heart and mind, and I want direction on how to proceed. Anonymity is appreciated. Thanks. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for reaching out and asking a difficult question. And I would sort of ask you a couple things. Uh, Does your wife ask you to do anything that makes you uncomfortable? Do these suggestions of uh, a link between dominant and submissive sexual activity and sexual abuse resonate with you because you have something in your sexual history that feels like abuse? If either of those are the case, I'd invite you to go see a mental health counselor for yourself. Don't even worry about your life right now and see if there's there's things in your life you need to come to terms with in your sexual history. Now, that aside, if we consider any potential link between promiscuity, uh, well, guess what? Many people are promiscuous, and by promiscuous I mean they have frequent sex with casual sexual partners without any history of sexual abuse. And many people are sexually adventurous, meaning they enjoy um, a variety of sexual activities or some specific fetish without any history of abuse. Meanwhile, there are many people who have history of sexual abuse who have very low libido or normal sex drives, and I put normal in giant quotations there, or enjoy you know, normal or very vanilla sexual activities. Uh, there's no clear linkage in data or studies that suggest abuse is a clear predictor for promiscuous or even specifically uh, dominant submissive sex acts. It's just not there in the data. Now, on the other hand, psychologists are in agreement 
almost universal agreement, that abuse can manifest itself in unhealthy or self-destructive sexual behaviors. And when I say this, I'm talking about sex without pleasure. I'm talking about compulsive sex. I'm talking about people that have sex when they don't want to, not that they're being raped or coerced, but simply they have a compulsion to have sex with people uh, as a result of abuse. And if those are the mechanisms driving your wife's behavior, they are unhealthy. But let's talk a little bit about how I look at sexual ethics today and how to make choices related to sex. First of all, I'm very focused on consent. When it comes to sex, is everyone involved choosing to participate? If it's yes for everyone involved, proceed. Now, is there coercion or manipulation involved? Is uh, someone's past being manipulated? Uh, is someone in a position of power uh, using that to create leverage to create or, or, or force consent? from someone in a position of less power or privilege? If, if that's the case, don't proceed. Now, that's not it. It's not just uh, is consent involved and is there a lack of coercion or manipulation, but also have any risk factors like sexually transmitted diseases or the amount of time and partners since the person has been last tested been disclosed. That has to happen for sex to be ethical. If one person is having sex with partners and not disclosing that to their primary partner or other partners, they are creating a risk of sexually transmitted disease being infected, and that's not ethical, right? That's what I'm talking about. Everyone's got to consent. There can't be coercion or manipulation, and people have to be aware what risk they are putting themselves in. That's why it's so critical that we're selective with sex partners and have sex with people we can trust because it only takes one person to violate that trust to give you a potentially life-threatening disease that can't be cured. This is heavy stuff. Now, inside of those constraints, or once those constraints are satisfied, it's not my job to decide what's healthy for someone else if they consent. It's never my job. It's not my job to figure out whether my wife's sexual motivations are healthy or not. It's only my job to know what I'm comfortable with and what my partner enjoys. And the intersection of those things are are our sex life together. So if your wife is interested in domination play and you're not, you can be honest and say, I'm uncomfortable with this and here's why. And it can be a discussion. And uh, if it's, you know, if she's not able to have any sort of sexual satisfaction without it, then you need to have time in the bedroom or not in the bedroom. That's a conversation and figure out where some shared values may be, where you can find mutual enjoyment. That's, that's the best part of sex is the intimacy between two people of learning with your minds what each other's bodies enjoy. We're so quick to just like box things in. Is this okay? Is this not okay? You know, that's for you to figure out in your own mind whether things are coming from, you know, some some place of compulsion, some place of trauma, or whether it's just something you enjoy. If you have any question about that, the best person to ask non-threateningly and empathetically is your wife. If you're concerned that her interest in submissive sex acts 
or dominant sex acts is related to trauma, ask her. You'll, there's no better person to ask than her. If you, you know, have trouble with her answer or you have trouble dealing with it, but she seems to feel like she's coming from a place of health, now it's time for you to go see a mental health counselor. And honestly, here's the deal. This is anecdotal. This is not scientific. But in my experience, some of the people that post on Facebook about this stuff, some of the people that scream the loudest about uh, specific types of sex, it's because uh, they struggle with a desire for the activity, that the taboo is alluring to them. I honestly, I don't let what people post on Facebook <laughs> really inform my life decisions. I love Facebook. I love to see, you know, people on vacation. I love to see what people are up to. I love family pictures. But, you know, like politics and religious issues and spirituality issues, I vet that stuff pretty heavily. I'm, I'm going to rely more on academic sources, trusted spiritual advisors, you know, people I know in flesh and blood and have in-person conversations with, and a bunch of Facebook posts. It's just, yeah. it's just not very interesting to me. You told me in your message that this weighs heavy on your heart, so let me offer you some freedom by saying... You are not responsible for your wife's mental health. You are responsible for loving your wife well. She's not your property. She's not a delicate object on the shelf. She's a human being with whom you've chosen to partner with and walk through life together. So don't try to control her thoughts don't try to feel like it's your responsibility to own her headspace or her feelings. It's merely your job to be the best partner in life for her that you can be. And if you do that, I think you might find that you both become healthier over time. Well, that's it, not only for another episode of Ask Science Mike, but another episode of Ask Science Mike After Dark. These are, without question, the episodes I get the most nervous about. The show keeps getting more popular. Every time we do an After Dark episode, I'm convinced it's the one that's going to convince everybody to uh, run away and stop listening and get upset about something I said. You know, just a little bit of uh, shared fear. Um, interestingly enough, every time we do an After Dark episode, it tends to take the show to new record highs and subscriber count. So I'm taking that as an indication, not that I have something special to say, but that there's a large desire in America, a across the world, and specifically in Christian and, and spiritual subcultures, to have more open discussions about sex and sexuality, about drugs, and about tough topics. It's the only reason I can think so many people listen to these shows and uh, why they tend to generate so much more email than the other episodes. Um, and with that said, man, guys, I got to thank you. The quality of the emails I get from this program are insane. You know, I've talked to other people who do podcasts, who have larger platforms, and they're blown away by the quality of the discussion and the critique and the information my listeners send me. You are just quality human beings, and I'm glad to be on this journey with you. Now, a couple things coming up. First of all, I'm going to be at the Collective Church in Fort Worth, Texas, August 8th through 9th. 
And on August 8th, we are going to do the first ever Ask Science Mike live. So an episode of this show will be coming after that event that you hear with a live audience. I'm going to answer questions. It could be a disaster because I won't have a chance to fact check before I give answers like I do on this version of the program, but whatever. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I'll be excited to see whether you guys enjoy that or not, whether you like it. I'm told a lot of people enjoy the energy of a live program. Frankly, my energy is different in a room of people than it is sitting alone in my office like I am now, you know, looking out my office window while I record the show. I'm an extrovert, so uh, it's a little tough for me to sit here by myself and um, not put everyone to sleep. (laughs) Anyway, so that's coming up August 8th through 9th. I've got a bunch of other events. If you go to AskScienceMike.com and click on Events, you can see what I've got coming up that's available for you to go to. I do a lot of private events that, that you know not anybody can go to, but public events are on the calendar. And guess what? I'd love to come to your city specifically. 2015 is just about completely booked for me, but I'm already booking dates in 2016, um, and it's going to be a big year. So if you'd like me to come to your church or your college or your conference or your community in 2016 or in a couple of available slots, in 2015, go to AskScienceMike.com, click on Book Mike, and Jim Chafee at Chafee Management can work everything out, and uh, I'll get on an airplane and come see you. I'd be happy to. It is my favorite thing in the world. So many wonderful questions coming in. Keep them coming. You can go to AskScienceMike.com and record a voice message or type a text message to me. Uh, it's basically an email form. That's a great way to put in an anonymous question, like all the questions on this week's After Dark episode were. And of course, Ask Science Mike is listener supported. Uh, you can join 112 other people right now uh, in helping make this show possible. Since I'm a full time podcaster, this is deeply appreciated. It's how I pay my mortgage and my health insurance, uh, in addition to, you know, also helping out all the other people that make the show possible. Uh, all that money doesn't just go to me. There's a lot of listeners, a lot of infrastructure, a lot of time, so every dollar helps. You can give at any level. A lot of people give a dollar a month or $5 a month, and that's fine. Some people give a lot of money every month to the point it makes me a little nervous that they give me too much money and might be putting themselves in hardship. So never feel coerced or manipulated to donate to my show and understand that you can cancel or change a pledge at any time. I'll be fine. If you need that money to make ends meet, make ends meet, please. Now, people who uh, support the show financially get all kind of perks. We're revamping those perks. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what people want the most. And uh, honestly, I'm blown away. So many of my patrons on Patreon said the perks. They don't even care. They're just happy to help make the show possible which I think, again, speaks to the uh, incredibly high-quality human beings that listen to this program. <laughs> it's really cool people. But always know Ask Science Mike will be free. It is free. It's going to stay free. That's not going to change. Uh, pre-production for Ask Science Mike is handled by Haley Hyde. Uh, she's a magician. Greg Nordine, the amazing Canadian, does our production and sound design. And, of course, our theme song on non-After Dark episodes is done by Jeb Botterford. Uh, this week's uh, smooth jazz, sensual stuff was put together by my boy Greg Nordine. Thanks for listening, guys, and I will see you next week. Bye.